millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, it is May... 2023, only just, first week, and I'm once again out in the woods. This is the same woods that I visited in episode two, and I'm retracing my steps because compared to where the woods were just a few weeks ago, it looks completely transformed and it smells completely transformed too because the bluebells are out and the perfume in here is wild sweet and heady so changes the way you think as well as the way you feel as you walk through it i absolutely love how in england we can track the year through the flowers. I'm sure it's similar everywhere, but to me, something about these flowers makes my heart swell. From the first snowdrops in spring to the bluebells welcoming in summer, the thickening clots of berries as we head into autumn, then the red pearls of holly and the white pearls of mistletoe as we look towards winter. I've been thinking of mistletoe in particular this week, although it might seem out of season, as I've been writing my Oxfordshire story. Mistletoe is iconic as a symbol of love and union in the modern age, but it was also the poisonous weapon used by the Norse god Loki to kill Balder the Beautiful. The Druids used it to restore fertility and as a defence against evil. While in the Middle Ages, it was said that if you picked mistletoe and left it under your pillow, then you would dream of your one true love. It's a rare thing, true love. Harder to find 
than mistletoe in May, I'd wager. And those of us who do find it, well, we guard it like dragons guarding our hoard. Still, in the meantime, we all have the bluebells, well, in England at least, which, if you leave them under your pillow, are said, according to folklore, to guard against nightmares. Well, that's handy knowledge, I'd say. And with this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down and down, hey, down and down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Three Ravens podcast. We're into double figures. Hey! Uh, my name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, award-winning poet, playwright, Shakespeare scholar and witch... Eleanor Conlon. Hello. So, Eleanor, last week was Valpurgis, Beltane, May Day. So many folk festivals in such a short time. How are you feeling? Well, kind of amazed, really, because the Three Ravens community has pushed our little podcast over the line and into the top 1% of podcasts worldwide. I know. It's absolute madness. I'm hoping that people saw on May Day we put up a couple of videos recorded in our local Bluebell Woods. Yeah. Ben Harbour, who sings on our theme song, joined us for a live version of Three Ravens and another song that we all love called Oak and Ash and Thorn. Yes, both songs are up on social media, so please check them out if you haven't already. We've also recorded a nicer new version of the Three Ravens theme. I just haven't quite got around to putting it all together in the right format <laughs> yes, yet to use it. Yes, the shiny new remastered version is, is coming soon. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, our new newsletter is now out oh, with yeah. a magic spell for the month, a tarot spread, folk customs. And also on Patreon, we have an exclusive witch trial special episode, yes. um, which went out on Valpurgis Night uh, with Martin's very creepy Pendle <laughs> witch story. Yeah, it has been a really busy week, sort of 10 days, something like that. <laughs> and we have so many thank yous to make. First and foremost, to our new supporters on Patreon, yes. Tracy and Stephen. Yes, all hail King Tracy of Patreon. And all hail King Stephen of Patreon. Thank you both so much for joining as supporters on Patreon. Of course, if anybody wants the podcast ad-free and lots and lots of bonus content, please check out patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. We also had another review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. Hooray. This one is from the Spiffy One, who writes, I was referred by my friend David from the English History Podcast, and I've really been enjoying the first eight episodes. In fact, I've also become a Patreon member it's smart informative funny and just all round charming the stories are excellent oh thank you the spiffy one and please <laughs> if you have a few minutes do fly 
over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and gronk us out a review. Each one we have there really does make a difference. It sure does. As for lovely people on social media, there are many. This is on facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, and at Three Ravens Pod on Twitter. Huge thank yous to champion likers, commenters, and sharers Tony, Val, Sherry, Christine, Sharon, Eric, Alicia, Mystic Moon, Therese Taylor, and Heli72. We've also had some more entries to our Three Ravens card design contest. Yeah. But there are still three weeks to go before the end of our first series. So keep them coming, everyone. Yes, please. If you're an artist of any skill level, send us a picture as a JPEG. That would look nice on the front of a greetings card. Inspired by nature and the folk tradition. And we'll pick our favourite three to turn into greeting cards and sell on our shop at www.3ravenspodcast.com. Com. Yes, email those entries and any other thoughts, feedback or messages about the podcast to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. So we are releasing this episode on Monday the 8th of May. A few things happen on the 8th of May, not least St. Indract's Day. I have never heard of St. Indract. Well, no, he's perhaps not one of the big hitters these days, <laughs> but he had a cult in the 10th and 11th centuries. His life also lines up with King Ina from the 7th century. And it's believed that Indract was a pilgrim king who went to Glastonbury Abbey in Somerset and was travelling back to Ireland with grain for his starving people, only he was then martyred by Saxon raiders and his body was subsequently put in a big stone shrine that was destroyed by... Let me guess. Yeah. Henry VIII. Yeah, you got it! <laughs> it's a theme. <laughs> well, perhaps we need to bring St Indract's Day back, if only to stick a finger up to Henry VIII. So what do we do on St Indract's Day? Uh, well, we have a feast. Uh, basically, yeah. We eat boar meat, especially. Great. As soon as we finish with the recording, I will go hunting. Excellent. Uh, also worth saying, if you're from Cornwall, you also celebrate St Michael's Day today. Why? Michaelmas is in September. Well, not in Cornwall. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Cornwall's not in the Southern Hemisphere, though. <laughs> so, in Helston, in Cornwall, an apparition of St Michael is feigned to have appeared on the 8th oh. of May, giving rise to a tradition known as Furry Day. Oh, um... What? I don't understand. Does Furry Day mean something different to the Helston Feast of St Michael? It does, uh, but tell, tell us about the Helston one. OK, well, uh, deriving from the Old English word fairy, Furry Day sees people in Helston getting up at dawn, heading to the Guildhall to see the mayor, then taking part in an early morning crop fertility dance. Mm. Then there's a parade called the Hallentau, where people take sycamore branches and proceed from St John's Bridge singing the furry song. How does the furry song go? Well, it's a ballad featuring St George and the Dragon, St Michael, Robin Hood and Little John and Aunt Mary Moses. After that, there's more dancing in phases... Children first, then couples in formal dress, then a proper free-for-all dance with everyone wearing corsages made of lily of the valley and dancing in and out of people's houses to bring them good luck. This sounds like a great time. Yeah, I Can you sing so. the fairy song? I can't. I don't know the fairy song. I'll put a link to it up uh, on our website. Just a quick one. If any of you are interested in Roman traditions, tomorrow, the 9th of May, 
also marks the start of Lemuralia. What's Lemuralia? Well, it's basically Roman Halloween. So last week you were talking about how it's bad luck to be married in May. Yes, because your children will be doomed. Well, that dates back to Lemuralia, which is a long Roman festival where the spirits of the dead are thought to return and walk the earth. Mm -hmm. Um, The church tried to remove all vestiges of Lemuralia from English May festivities, but that belief about marriages being bad luck, well, that still lingers on. Oh, that's super interesting. So if the chances of uh, ghostly sightings are higher during Lemuralia, we should probably get to some haunted places Mm. and see if we can spot some spooks. Yes, yes. Anyway, speaking of lingering, um, I think we should probably give the county criers a kick to ring us into Oxfordshire. Come on, you lazy ne'er-do-wells. Well then, Eleanor, when I say Oxfordshire, what do you think about? Uh, Well, the town of Oxford, mostly Oxford University, um, and the setting for Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials novels, which I absolutely love, and Lewis Carroll and the Alice in Wonderland stories, because he lived and worked there. I have visited, but only once or twice, so I don't know it very well. Okay, good. So a lot of county to get through that you don't know much about. Lovely. So Oxfordshire, is another landlocked county bordered by Northamptonshire to the northeast, Warwickshire to the northwest, Buckinghamshire to the east, Berkshire to the south, Wiltshire to the southwest, and Gloucestershire to the west. Wow, it's surrounded. It sure is. Now, I used to live in Oxfordshire when I was a little boy, was in the Cotswolds for quite a few years. As always, there's a map showing its precise location in England on 3ravenspodcast.com, along with a blog of expanded information about this episode and all the others. Getting straight into the folklore, though, the highest point in Oxfordshire is known as the White Horse Hill, the site of the Uffington Horse. Is the Uffington Horse an actual horse? Well, (laughs) there's a prehistoric hill figure there, uh, 100 metres long, with its outline filled with crushed chalk. It overlooks the Vale of White Horse and was created sometime between 1380 BC and 550 BC. So a very old horse. Yes, a very old horse. It's actually believed to be a rendition of the ancient Celtic goddess Epona, Mm. the great mare. She was the goddess of horses and fertility. Normally, Epona has a cornucopia, though, a riding horn, and ears of grain. Still, she's meant to lead souls into the afterlife, riding them through the veil. Epona's feast day is on December the 18th, if you're interested. Now, the historic county town of Oxfordshire is Oxford, as you mentioned, probably the most famous place in Oxfordshire. The word literally means the ford for oxen, that ford being over the River Thames, which runs all the way up from London. Mm. Oxfordshire's county motto is Latin, in separe orde, meaning dare to be wise. That's a great motto for a university town. It is. And to address that elephant in the room, we need to discuss Oxford University, the oldest university in the English-speaking 
world. But don't mention it to anyone from Cambridge University. (laughs) (laughs) Bit of a sore point. Now, Oxford's known for its dreaming spires and stunning architecture, much of which was designed by Christopher Wren. Happy 300th centenary to Christopher Wren, by the way. Anyway, Oxford University is thought to have been founded as early as 1096. That's in contrast to Cambridge, which was founded in 1209. So, you know, it's a relative baby. <laughs> now, the pair of those universities are known in England and maybe around the world as Oxbridge because they are the nation's leading universities and two of the best in the world. In the Middle Ages, people came from all over Europe to study at Oxford University, especially after various restrictions were imposed on European universities. You then had the town and gown riots of the 13th century. Oh, yes, a sort of rivalry between the townsfolk and the university staff and students. Yeah, so this is when the people of Oxford started to get fed up with all of these students, which is how the first Oxford colleges were founded. I mean, most universities now have halls of residence. Mm. Well, the first ones came about because the townspeople were like, these trainee priests, they are annoying us. And they, yeah, fought. So, yeah, those halls of residence are basically there to provide safe accommodation for these trainee priests. Now, the list of prime ministers, philosophers, and various award winners and people of note from Oxford's history is extensive, but we'd be remiss to not mention the Oxford movement. Are you familiar? Nope, but if you play it, I will dance. (laughs) Well, basically, from 1833, the Oxford movement sought to revitalise Catholic aspects of the Anglican Church, which fed into the general folk revival movements of the 19th century. Ah, that's very interesting. So, um, for any other Thomas Hardy fans out there, Oxford is the primary setting, of course, for Thomas Hardy. Hardy's novel Jude the Obscure yes. and it also features uh, quite a vicious critique of the elitist uh, realm of the university and how difficult it was then for the working man to break into that academic circle. Well for Hardy that was really a, uh, a, a, a yes, sort of sore point in his life. Ever such a tiny chip on his shoulder there. <laughs> <laughs> now as for the county more broadly during the Roman occupation Oxfordshire just wasn't seen as useful. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't important, wasn't useful. So it was kind of ignored. <laughs> the first major ping on the history radar is that Alfred the Great was born in the Vale of Whitehorse in 848. And then from the 13th century, the county became wealthy through the wool trade. Mm, we see a lot of that, don't we, with the historic counties. England used to be really big in the wool trade. Yeah, it sure did. That was kind of when the country was on the up and up. It's quite an open county in many respects. The three big areas of outstanding natural beauty include the Cotswolds, which is an old word for sheep enclosure. That's the largest area of outstanding natural beauty in England. It's a huge area with a bedrock of Jurassic limestone and grassland filled with the remains of Neolithic settlements, burial chambers and Bronze and Iron Age forts. What's weird though is that Oxfordshire was not important during the age of castle building so you don't really get 
many of what we think of as traditional English oh, really? castles That's in Oxfordshire. Yeah, I mean, I guess if it doesn't have a strategic position, yes. what's the point? Although I'm surprised that the barons didn't just pop a few up to show off. Well, there are some later folly-type big grand country mm. manor houses. More on that shortly. Um, but yeah, it's just open land for a lot of it. So you've also got part of the North Wessex Downs in Oxfordshire, which includes the White Horse Hills and the Chiltern Hills. Those were formed when England was covered with a huge ice sheet about 65 million years ago. They're all very, very pretty. The most famous historic sites from the county are all built much later. So that includes the likes of Blenheim Palace, which I imagine you've heard of. Yes, I have. So Blenheim Palace is named after the successes of the Duke of Marlborough in the Wars of Spanish Succession in the early 1700s, which culminated in the Battle of Blenheim, hence the name of the house. It's an English Baroque house, pretty astonishing to look at and visit, with gardens designed by father of the English landscape garden, Capability Brown, in the 1760s. Probably in the modern era, Blenheim's most famous as the birthplace and ancestral home of Winston Churchill. Oh, I didn't actually know that. Yeah. I, I know Chartwell, which was his, his home later in sure, life. Sure, sure. We will fight the border. Um, none of which are in Oxfordshire. <laughs> no, none at all. You've actually got a load of stunning stately homes in Oxfordshire, including, working backwards, Charleston House from the Jacobean era, Maple Durham House from the Elizabethan era, and the Abbey in Sutton Courtney, which is seen as the kind of textbook example of the English medieval manor house. Lovely. Yeah, they're all really, really beautiful. Again, I'll put pictures up on the blog. If you are going to Oxford itself, though, you absolutely have to visit both the Ashmolean Museum, which is England's oldest public museum and an incredible museum of art and archaeology, and the Pitt Rivers Museum. Oh, I'd love to visit there. Now, you will find no more esoteric and bizarre a museum than the Pitt Rivers in just about every film about archaeology or the arcane or the occult you eventually see like a secret room or chambers of artifacts or what have you and the pit rivers is the daddy of all of those kinds of places this may be my favorite museum in the world i don't think i've been i went to a great witchcraft exhibition at the ashmolean a few Ah, years back um they had some amazing artifacts including a lot of things from the museum of witchcraft in devon yes uh, which is very much on my museum bucket list probably top of it (laughs) (laughs) well we should definitely go to the pit rivers as soon as we can it's so cool but folklore wise i mean I feel I should crack my knuckles. <laughs> Excellent. Quite a long list and only time to scratch the surface. Now, we already talked about the Rollwright stones in our Warwickshire episodes. The uh, Rollwrights are on the border of Oxfordshire and Warwickshire, so I refer people back to that episode for more about them. But not far away... There's Wayland's Smithy. Whoa, you can actually go to the Smithy of Wayland the Smith. Yeah, that's right. So Wayland's Smithy is a Neolithic long barrow and chamber tomb. It's about 5,000 years old, and the legend goes that it's home of Wayland, the Saxon god of smithing. It's said that if you leave a horse tethered at Wayland's Smithy overnight with a coin for payment left nearby, that when you come back in the morning, your horse will be shod with fresh horseshoes. You presumably have the gleam of supernatural knowledge in its horsey eyes. <laughs> oh my God, can you imagine a really, really clever horse as well? A like, horse which has seen things. Yeah. 
I've been hanging out with a god, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Similarly, in Taston village, there's a huge standing stone known as the Thor Stone. The stone is allegedly formed of a bolt of lightning thrown by the Norse god Thor, with the village named Thorsten way back, later shortened to Taston. Nice. Yeah. As for particular folk tales, you've got the tale of the devil and Barnard Gate, where a man travelling from North Lee to Barnard Gate was accosted by the devil in the form of a flaming serpent. I hate it when that happens. Yeah, I know. Me too. Now, the serpent made a ring around this man, tempting him and preventing him from making progress. But he managed to best the devil in a game of riddles, so escaped. Only when he came back with a gang to battle and confront the creature, the devil had vanished. Very wise of him too. <laughs> I mean, there's also a theory where this man actually was just drunk and needed an excuse as to why he wasn't on at <laughs> time. It was a flaming serpent. Yeah, that's it. Now, now, Margaret, I know I should have been home hours ago. I mean, it gives the dog ate my homework and run for its money, yeah, it doesn't certainly it? <laughs> does. Uh, you've also got the legend of Black Jack's Hole. Black Jack's Hole being a bend in the River Thames near Port Meadow. And the legend goes that there's a goblin who lives there called Blackjack, who's meant to grab would-be swimmers and drown them. There's quite an alarmingly long list of recorded victims, so perhaps not the place to pop in if you fancy a dip. Wild swimmers beware. Yeah, quite right. Similar deal at Fringford Mill, actually, where corpse lights or will-o'-the-wisps are famed for drawing people off roads and into the marshes there. Just ignore will-o'-the-wisps if you encounter them, everyone. Bad things, very bad. Yeah, nothing good ever happens in stories with Will-O-The-Wisps. No, quite right. Now, if it's fairies you're after, or goblins, actually, as well, head to Adwell Cop, where there's another long barrow famed as a pixie mound. Uh, that's just a mile away from Poppets Hill. Poppets Hill? Yeah. That's a really sweet name. It is. But what's interesting is Poppets Hill famously sits over a renowned goblin pit and poppet is an old word for goblin. That is so interesting. I, is. I hadn't heard that. I knew poppet was an old word for a doll, yeah. um, which is one of the names for puppet. That's yeah. why we have that now. That's but right. I've never heard poppet used in conjunction with goblin. No, it's, it's, it's sort of misleadingly adorable sounding, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. The goblins thought if we put up a nice sign saying Poppet's Hill, perhaps with some pictures of flowers, <laughs> we can lure our unsuspecting <laughs> victims in and grab them by the ankles before yeah. they know what's happening. <laughs> now, again, I'd say bad things goblins. Very bad, so... Well, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> also, maybe just slightly wary about going to Poppets Hill. There are a few superb Oxfordshire traditions worth mentioning. For example, in Ducklington, rather than traditions of the tooth fairy, it's believed that when children lose a milk tooth, the only safe thing to do is burn the lost tooth. <laughs> 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 Why? Well, it prevents the child from becoming cursed. So you're, Do you're... teeth burn? <laughs> I don't know. I thought teeth were usually left over after... <laughs> yeah, it sounds kind of grim um, to me. It does. And and I think a way to invite trouble yeah. is if you're the tooth fairy and you're expecting your tithe <laughs> and you're finding these people burning your tithe, you're not going to be very happy, are no, you? you're not. So, yeah, anyway, Ducklington, that's where that tradition's from. In Lower Hayford, it's also believed and I think this is really interesting, that no baby under a year old should be allowed to see its own face in a mirror or have its nails cut for the first year of its life 
lest they grow up to become a thief. Wow, that's a fascinating belief. <laughs> You've got to wonder where that one comes from, haven't you? Yes, I mean, I, I can sort of understand about the nails because hands and theft kind of go together, but not seeing your face in the mirror. But that's, that feels like a changeling prevention strategy. Kind of does, yeah. Doesn't the it? idea that you, you might see your other self in the mirror and it might <laughs> sort of replace you. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. So lots of long-nailed babies well, in Lower Hayford. If you've ever hung out much with babies, their little nails are really sharp. So I think you're setting yourself up for kind of a disastrous yeah, amount of being scratched by <laughs> tiny children. Anyway, you know, best of luck to the people of Lower Hayford with that particular strategy. Another Oxfordshire tradition that I think is hilarious relates to the Horns of Ox Street. Oh, yes. So this relates to a sculpture of a bull's head dating from the year 1700, when, on May Day, after an ox was roasted in Abingdon's Market Square, two groups of Morris men, the Vineyard men and the Ox Street men, had a massive fight over who would get the ox's horns. <laughs> Who did? Well, the Ox Street men won and made this sculpture with the horns in it. And to this day, the Ox Street men will not perform unless those horns are present. <laughs> it's also a solid name for a brass band, yeah. the Horns of Ox Street. It, it is, that's true. As for today's story, this Oxfordshire classic is also famed in Warwickshire and known in some quarters as the Mistletoe Bow. Still, my version is called Lord Lovell's Bride and I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the quiet parish of Minster Lovell, on the bristling banks of the Windrush River, you'll find the empty ruins of a barren hall. Built of grey rubble and once faced with fine ashlar, the roof fell in over a century ago. The stairs have long since crumbled away and the vaults beneath the house are filled in now, but in 1708 those very vaults were excavated and a secret chamber found inside. Within that secret chamber, there was a body. It was male, entirely wasted away, and within minutes of being exposed to fresh air, the corpse crumbled away and turned to dust. Some say this was the body of Francis Lovell, heir to the house and the last in a long line of Lovells, dating back to the Norman invasion. 
Francis had been the ninth, but he made a mistake, supporting Richard III during the War of the Roses. The Lovell family held estates all over England, including at Middleham Castle in Yorkshire, Acton Burnell in Shropshire, and Old Wardle in Salisbury. But after the Yorkist defeat at the Battle of Stoke in 1487, Francis Lovell disappeared. His estates were searched over, but Lovell was nowhere to be found. So the theory goes, he escaped to Minster Lovell Hall, which by then had been gifted by the Crown to Jasper Tudor, Duke of Bedford. And there he hid, secreted in a little-known chamber deep underground. Whether Bedford locked him in or a servant abandoned him there, or if he was already ill and just wasted away, whatever the case, the ninth Lord Lovell starved to death in that secret iron cage and was forgotten about for almost three centuries. Yet, that discovery was hardly the first macabre story associated with the Lovells, for it was William, the seventh Lord Lovell, who built the hall in Oxfordshire, and William was known as a kind man, unlike his father, John, the mad Lord Lovell, who had spent a fortune on an elaborate four-storey octagonal tower there. The Mad Lord built the tower for his own defence, so he said, against evil forces that had cursed his family's blood. It was defensible, and the Mad Lord lived in that tower almost entirely alone. After the death of his wife, it was just John and William. At the top of it, in the room above John's bedchamber, the Mad Lord kept his greatest treasures, heirlooms of past Lovell victories, safely locked in a grand oak chest with a stiff iron lock, sumptuously carved of the finest English oak. As a boy, William Lovell had been scared of the tower, suspecting he knew the things his father and his father's father and men before that had done to acquire that gold and that silver. Bright as they were to others, for William, those treasures were stained blood red. Unlike the Mad Lord, William was a man of peace, as soon as he could, he moved away from his father. He went to Oxford University, training to become a priest. But when the time came to take holy orders, the mad lord died. William inherited the family's wealth, so declined a life in the church. But he dedicated himself to good works, nonetheless. William set about having the oak chest emptied, using part of his father's treasure to renovate St. Kenelm's Church, the place where many of his ancestors were buried. You can see them there still, and the marble busts William had commissioned, hoping to buy their way into heaven years after their lives of brutal war and slaughter. Alas, the renovations at St. Kenelm's did not clear the chests with its thick oak sides and banded iron hoops. Besides, new money kept flowing into William's household with such rapidity 
that it threatened to fill the chest once more. So William crept up to the top of that tower, opening the chest, embellished as it was with the grotesque faces of goblins and dragons, monsters and trolls, and he filled a sack with those goods, those heirlooms, that treasure, carrying his legacy off to sell, giving half to the poor and using half to build Minster Lovell Hall. Gentle, softly spoken, charitable. After William built the hall, it became a warm and happy place, a grand house, the old tower, the coldest part, situated in its corner up a flight of twisting stairs William knew to avoid. And though William entertained and paid his servants well and was loved by the people of the parish, the grand home he had built felt shockingly empty. At night, William would struggle to sleep, wandering its halls and rooms, achingly alone. As the years went by and silver grew into William Lovell's beard and started to speckle his temples, he became more and more lonesome. Friends would try to interest him in hunting and sport, revelry and drink, but Lord Lovell? Well, he pined for something he feared he would never know. That thing? Love. Not a roll in the hay or a sowing of wild oats. William sought true, meaningful love, the kind of which he had perhaps once felt for God, but since his father's death, he worried he might never, ever know it. Happily, while out riding on one bright autumn day, William saw a woman who he knew was the one. Her name was Elizabeth. She was playing with children in the road, laughing and running dirt on her skirts. And though she was only the daughter of a tenant farmer, humbler in background than he, from the moment William laid eyes on her, his heart skipped for joy. For weeks he was too nervous to speak to her, and though she was some years his junior, Elizabeth knew of William Lovell's good works, and he was a handsome man as well as generous. She never might have imagined a person as grand as he might choose her for a wife, but he did, and her playful smile, her laughter, and her sense of irrepressible mischief brought joy to William Lovell of a kind he had never known. So, a wedding day was set. Christmas. A day of charity and goodwill. And at the very church William had helped to rebuild St Kenelms, the pair were joined in holy matrimony. All and sundry were invited to the wedding feast, from neighbouring lords to washerwomen, gentry to chimney sweeps, and to cope with all of them, Lord Lovell opened the hall's windows and doors wide, the feast stretching from inside to out, tables laid end on end right through the gardens. 
Fires and torches were lit, people dressing in their thickest clothes and with the brisk air pinching their cheeks, the tables decorated with ivy, mistletoe and holly all ate their fill, made merry, feasting and drinking long into the night. It's said Lord Lovell was dressed as the Lord of Misrule, his new bride as his lady wearing a mistletoe crown. Games were played, laughter echoed down the river, bouncing off its fast-moving water. The party was wild, food abounding, and the wine poured freely. As darkness fell, however, Lord Lovell, keen to take his bride to his bedchamber, turned to her and smiled a wide smile. Knowing his meaning and with warmth in her heart, Elizabeth grinned. One last game, please, my lord, and a good one to boot, she said. As you wish, my lady, William replied, what sport would be your pleasure? A hide-and-go-seek, she replied, standing and planting a kiss on his red cheek. Count to a hundred, then come to find me. So it was that Elizabeth Lovell walked away from the feast, disappearing into the grand hall she could now rightly call her home, and William, the Lord of Misrule, wearing his crown of holly, closed his eyes and counted, just as he had been bade. His first port of call, as you might imagine, was his bedroom, but he searched all his cupboards under his bed in his wardrobe and Elizabeth was nowhere to be found. Perplexed, he moved on, searching the other rooms on the second floor, rifling through each with growing desperation. He sought on, on the upper floors, the third and the attic, then proceeded to the kitchens, beginning to worry. As the hours wore on, those guests who remained formed a search party. The torches were pulled from the ground and the house and grounds scoured. The nearby woods were walked through. Lady Lovell's name called out into the night. The riverbanks combed until dawn broke. Some felt it the worst of all fates, that William had been taken for a fool right and true, and his new wife, faced with the thought of marriage to an older man, had simply fled and would never be found. Others feared she'd fallen into the wind rush and drowned, her body carried downstream or claimed by the creatures within. Yet, as the days wore into weeks and the weeks into months, the chill of winter gave way to spring. Then spring gave way to summer. Yet the cold never left William Lovell. The Lord grew older so quickly, his friends who had not seen him since that fateful wedding day would catch sight of him and mistake him for his father, the mad Lord, withering away. By night, Lord Lovell would once again wander the rooms of his hall, which now felt all the more empty. As he walked, he wept, crying out in the night, fearful of heading to bed, for when he slept, 
he was haunted by dreams. The voice of his mistletoe bride called out to him from deep in the dark. William, it's dark. Why don't you come find me? I'm so aching for you, I can hardly breathe. He would wake, bathed in sweat, his heart thundering, and sometimes he would search again, looking over the same places, hoping perhaps somehow he'd missed something, some clue that would reveal where his true love had gone. Yet it was no use, and each night, as he lay down to rest, her voice would sound in his mind. William, it's dark. Why don't you come find me? I'm so aching for you, I can hardly breathe. The months turned into years, and as the memory of Elizabeth waned in the minds of so many, Lord Lovell was left alone in his grief and his pain. His servants found him no longer so kind, no longer so willing to smile, and... As the money came in from his lands and estates, questions arose as to what to do with it. So it was that one day a maid opened the old turret door, recalling that once people said the mad lord had kept his treasure in a trunk. Thinking to dust it down and return it to its old purpose, she was sent by the steward up to the fourth floor. And there, in the middle of that dusty, unused room, she saw the old chest, carved with grotesque faces, abandoned with iron, its stiff lock firmly closed. She went for help, and eventually, after great labour and the application of whale oil and a length of iron, the lid was prized open. Concealed inside, in a tattered silk gown, wearing a mistletoe crown, was Lord Lovell's bride. They told William, who rushed to the chamber and saw her there, his own greatest treasure, lain in that forsaken box. And though he raised her up out of it, her body was so frail it fell to pieces in his arms, the words of his dreams echoing in his mind. William, it's dark. Why don't you come find me? I'm so aching for you, I can hardly breathe. A sad tale, for sure, not least because William Lovell never recovered. His hair was white for the rest of his days, and though he married again some daughter of a lord and fathered a son he called John after his own father, he only grew more and more mad. So his wife and son moved away, repairing to Titchmarch Castle, and there they lived in great comfort. William, meanwhile, stayed in Minster Lovell Hall, moving into the tower, making a bedroom in the room below the garret where the chest remained. People say they used to see him, walking through the rooms at night long after his bride had been found. Some said he danced as if on his wedding night. 
though with a partner invisible to all but him. Others even swore he kept searching, rifling through wardrobes and cupboards and chests as if she'd never been found at all. It's even believed that Lord Lovell kept on with his nighttime wanderings after death long beyond the time after which the house was bought by Sir Edward Coke in 1603. Which is why, over the years, Minster Lovell Hall fell into disrepair, abandoned in 1747 and desolate ever since. So, while it might seem like a fun sort of place to play hide-and-seek, the locals of Minster Lovell Village recommend against it. Though it's also said that if you're very quiet in the still of the night, you might yet hear them laughing together at play forevermore, William, Lord Lovell, and Elizabeth, Lord Lovell's bride. So, Eleanor, Lord Lovell's bride, how about it? Well, it's very sad. Yeah. What a tragic story, this poor man who finally finds the love of his life only to lose her on their wedding day. I know. One of the strange things about it as a story, in my opinion, and I think one of the reasons that maybe it's lived on and become so famous, is there's no real moral to it. Other than don't get into a chest when you find the lid very heavy to lift because you might get trapped and also yeah. suffocate. Um, oh my God. Yes, do, do I mean, choice we... of hiding place, I suppose, is the only real moral of yeah. the story. Do you remember when we were growing up, it was in the news all the time about playing with chest freezers and things like yes, that? Yes, exactly. Yeah. You, you were warned uh, not to get into them. And, you know, whenever you visit any of those stately homes, there is inevitably a Tudor or Jacobean oh, chest, yeah. a beautiful casket. I mean, they're amazing pieces, aren't they? They Often are. intricately carved, but they're big, heavy yeah. coffers. Serious things. That were often used as wedding gifts, so, uh, hope chests, you know, dowry chests. Yep. Uh, people would be presented with wedding presents in these beautiful chests, and then it was part of the dowry. So would have lived in bedchambers. Yeah, for sure. What do you think about the whole Francis Lovell? So, you know, several generations on, you've got this descendant, another person trapped, another person forgotten, buried in the ground and found hundreds of years later. And the connecting factor is this bad luck box. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's bad luck family. Yes, it's bad, bad luck, luck house. family. But versions of this story, I, I have heard versions of this story before. Oh, from yeah. Other places. It pops up, doesn't it? I mean, it's claimed by dozens of stately homes and camps. <laughs> Really? And country houses all over but England. But I guess they don't have the Francis Lovell connection, no. which um, Mr. Lovell does. That's true. Um, and, and also Francis Bacon kind of pinned it to this house. But the short list that I've assembled of houses that claim this story are Brams Hill House and Marwell Hall in Hampshire, Castle Horneck in Cornwall, Basildon Grotto in Berkshire, Exton Hall in Rutland, Brockdish Hall in Norfolk and Bordrip Rectory 
in Somerset. Wow. <laughs> so that's ten. Do we have a Sussex mistletoe bride story? <laughs> I don't know if we do. I mean, those are the ten that I uh, I found that were sort of like most readily accepting <laughs> of saying like, wow. oh no, we, we have also had a woman who fell into a box, you know. <laughs> well, if you know any other examples, please do tweet them to us. Oh yeah. We'd love to hear them. Please do. And the story, this idea of a bride falling into a chest and being forgotten and then rediscovered later, it lives on in loads of stories as well that don't really credit the original mm. tale. So Henry James has got a story, The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, and your good old pal Thomas Hardy again in Alawadikian. Yes. Uh, there's a bit in there. Um, it also features in Hitchcock's classic thriller, Rope, and most interestingly, as far as I'm concerned, during the Victorian era, a ballad called The Mistletoe Bow became so phenomenally popular that for years, up and down the country, it was traditional to sing the song on Christmas Day. How jolly. I know, it's kind of macabre, isn't it? Yes, have a lovely Christmas and don't get into a big box. <laughs> yeah, true, true. <laughs> By 1862, this ballad was known in England as one of the most popular songs ever written. Really? Yeah. Now that I'll, is fascinating. I'll pop a link up to a lovely recording of it on the blog. There's an idea for our next woodland music session as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, there's something also in the moment in your story where he finds her and yeah. opens the chest and she, she crumbles to justice has. There's something reminiscent about tomb openings yeah. as well. So centuries later, archaeologists or just the curious Victorians <laughs> primarily doing that um, opening opening tombs under completely non-scientific conditions. Well, the, most... the idea of this, oh, a perfectly preserved body which has lain here for centuries undisturbed. Yeah. Oh dear, it's turned to dust. The one that, of course, captured the public imagination more than any other was all the Howard Carter curses and yes, the Egyptians and all, all the rest, which isn't that different in, in time to the Mistletoe Bride ballad becoming popular, really. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? There must be a Victorian fascination. Well, I mean, they were, weren't they? The cult of the funeral. Yeah, definitely. Was quite something. A death associated culture. Yes, yeah. mourning culture. And of course, there's barrows and burial sites all over Oxfordshire, so definitely worth a visit if you're into tombs. <laughs> You can, it's worth saying, visit Minster Lovell Hall. It's rather pretty and managed by English Heritage, but like a lot of English Heritage properties, it's kind of just slowly falling to pieces. So support English Heritage, yes, everyone. support them, and then um, things won't be crumbling quite as much as Sutton Valance Castle. <laughs> I think Sutton Valance Castle might be a bit beyond help. It's, yeah, the kind of the lowest on the rung of all, <laughs> all the places we've visited. And also, just a final thing. How about that, Eleanor? I wrote a romance story. Yes, you did. Maybe one with a happy ending next time, Martin. What do you think? <sighs> All right. Doable? <laughs> OK, back to the drawing board. Anyway, Eleanor, tell me, do, where are we headed to next week and what kind of story have you got to tell? Next week, we are headed to historic Middlesex. Oh, OK. And my story will deal with the founding of our great nation, uh -huh. among other things, and a few... <laughs> Incredibly tall people. Really? Incredibly tall people in the founding of our nation? Mm -hmm. Are we talking about giants? Couldn't possibly say. You'll have to tune in next week to find out. Oh, I do like a giant.
For now, though, please do swing by our website at www.3ravenspodcast.com where we host our archive of all past episodes, keep our blog with all sorts of expanded information for each episode and our online shop for Three Ravens merchandise. And as always, if you have your own folk tale that you would like us to feature on the podcast, then do write it up and email it to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'll feature it in one of our upcoming listener episodes. Also for arty folk to enter our card design contest send us those folk inspired designs to that same email address as jpegs please do also follow us on twitter via at three ravens pod instagram via at three ravens podcast and facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast where as always we'll keep posting up photos and stories and other interesting tidbits for people to enjoy until next time then while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods Thanks and credit go to Kevin Mainwaring's anthology of Oxfordshire folktales, June Lewis-Jones' lovely book, Folklore of the Cotswolds, and the super website Dark Oxfordshire, all of which were very helpful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Ben Harbour and Eleanor Conlon, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.